0: Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Savel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and off boarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and device management. With our state of the art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. What I've always found true is if you can articulate that well enough, it is useful both to internal and external. But it's also a really great litmus test. If you sit down to write your public letter and you can't explain why you're doing something. If it doesn't fit in with your overarching strategy, it goes back to that first thing we said as PMs, which is sometimes you have to say no to it. You're like, I actually can't explain to anyone why we're spending time on this particular feature. It doesn't fit any of the four themes we said we're doing this year. Does that mean we have a fifth theme or does that mean we shouldn't be doing that? And that clarity and that kind of litmus test is really, really useful as a leader when few people say no to you.
1: Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung. Many thanks to the organizers from South by Southwest Sydney and Steinhauser behind me to provide this podcast stage today. With me today, Tom a former Chief Product Officer
0: of Twitch. Thanks for having me, mate.
1: Yeah, for the podcast, I usually start with the superhero
0: origin story. So how did you start your career? Superhero origin story. God, that's overselling (laughs) it at the start. Mate, I I did a bunch of things to kind of start. And I think that's pretty much always true for product managers because unlike our kind of compadres in engineering, there isn't PM school that you can go to. You don't, you know, graduate from university with a PM degree like you might CS. So I started uni and actually worked at at a public broadcaster here in Australia, the ABC, and worked doing a variety of jobs across the business teams for a little while. I moved into management consulting because I was smart, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so spent, that was like a a telco and media focused tech kind of consulting company, which was really fun because it was like 2010 and everybody was trying to work out what does the internet do to their business model. So I spent a lot of time. Well, well, broadly, all of the newspapers and TV stations were trying to grapple with what happens when like, all advertising shifts online, so all newspapers were still funded by classifieds at the time. I know that sounds archaic, 13 years later, but at the time, all the advertising was still classifieds in newspapers. And all of the telcos, if you recall, were trying to work out how not to be the dumb pipe, mm. because they were really worried about the volume and cost of data which it turns out data provision has come down massively in costs since then. But at the time, they were all really worried that they were going to be lumped with the costs of the internet, but make none of the revenues. Mm. So spent a couple of years doing that and then actually moved to Singapore for three years. I started as like a, we had a client from the consulting company that was a little ad tech startup based in Singapore, moved there to go do a project for them and then promptly quit working for the consulting company to work full time for them because it was a lot more fun. And that's where I got my first kind of hybrid product role. It was a combination of business strategy and, and product work. And then from there, took on a, a full-time product role with another startup that was kind of spanning uh, Singapore and India. So I spent the better part of 2014 actually living and working in Bangalore for a company called ZipDial, which was then later acquired by Twitter, which is how I ended up in the US. Oh. So by pure chance one day, ZipDial added 30 million Twitter users. We basically had a product that let people who wanted to follow Narendra Modi get his tweets sent to them via SMS. And of course, in an Indian election campaign with a figure as popular as Modi, quite a lot of people responded to that call. And so by accident, Zipdial moved Twitter's stock market price or share price because we added 30 million users to a 200 million user platform and the the market responded accordingly. And so Twitter came and acquired us. Mm. And as part of that acquisition, I ended up moving to the US and working for Twitter and working particularly on their growth team, spanning both kind of US and international. Mm. And then and the later part of my time at Twitter, I ended up working on the team that was doing live video. Because back in like 2016, if you recall, Twitter tried a big foray into live video with Thursday Night Football in the US. Yes. And then they tried things like running the Melbourne Cup and they bid for the IPL rights and they were trying to move into kind of like a live video meets social Mm. kind of spin. And one of the truths of product management is when you are trying to build something from scratch, the first thing you do is you go and look at who's already good at this. And the best people in the world at synchronous video and chat, it turns out, was a company called Twitch. And as an avid video gamer, and you know, I knew people who were working there, I ended up interviewing at Twitch, where I started as a principal PM. And then over the course of the next kind of seven years, I kind of worked my way from IC principal PM into a senior director role, into a VP role. And eventually, for the last two and a half years, I was on the Twitch executive team as CPO.
1: Mm. So just before we get into... Thinking about lessons from your career journey, I wanted to ask this question, and this usually happens to product management. Like We don't have a school. I also yes, got into product management myself, but I came from the technical side mm-hmm. and eventually ended up to get both the intersection between business and technology. But from your point of view, do you think usually for the modern day product management, you can still start from the business side to get
0: towards the tech or the other way around? I absolutely think you can start anywhere. I Mm. think there are really only two fundamental skills for product management. There is critical thinking and product intuition. I can teach you critical thinking. It's hard, but I can teach you that. Product intuition, you can only learn. I actually can't teach you to have good instincts in the same way that like no designer can be taught taste. Mm. And so your intuition around what will work, what will people respond to, what things are going to be kind of effective is something that you only learn by doing. Right. This is why we talk about kind of, you know, product managers have to work their way up from being a junior feature PM into a full product PM, into a kind of PM who owns a suite of products, into somebody who ends up being kind of a, a product leader. Because you just need reps in order to kind of hone your intuition. But lots of people start with good critical thinking skills, particularly, you know, people in business are taught that a lot. It's why you used to get a lot of MBAs become product managers, because what is an MBA if not a lesson in critical thinking about businesses and kind of customers? People who are technical tend to have a leg up in terms of that intuition element because they have been building products for longer and so they kind of by osmosis get some of those reps where I was an engineer working on a product and so I saw the things that worked and didn't work and you have absorbed those lessons but I don't think there's anything to say that you can't move across from the business side and have excellent critical thinking Mm -hmm. and then be prepared to kind of have the at-bats in order to get your intuition up.
1: I agree and also that there are some engineers who couldn't do product management because they forgot about the having critical thinking about how the consumers are using the apps, how you know how the business is looking at it. And and I think one of the big things that people think product managers need to do is to align. I always thought of aligning stakeholders as yep. one of the key
0: big traits that you have to be as a product manager because you have to manage all sites. Yeah. I mean, um, when we are onboarding junior PMs, one of the things we talk about is the PMs own questions that start with W and engineers and designers own questions that start with H. So the PM. Right, and I know that's an absurd simpleness, but like, like oversimplification, but it helps. Which is like PM owns questions like, who is the customer? What are their problems? Why are we doing this? What does good look like? Mm. When do these things need to get done by? engineering and design own how does it look how does it work how long will it take and the separation of those two things is actually really powerful because if you are limited in your vision to the things that you know how to do then you will only design a solution that is within your current constraints Uh, whereas if you are starting with a question that says what we really need to do is work out how to solve this massive existential problem it helps direct a team without it being kind of guided similarly uh If you end up having a product manager who is overly prescriptive in terms of how we will solve this and how it will look and how it will work, you have a non-technical person who is prescribing to technical people how to build something. And plenty of engineers will sit down and build exactly what you asked for even if it turns out to be terrible in the end because you asked for it, the client gets what they ask. So having a clear delineation between what versus how I found pretty helpful. And plenty of of excellent business minds know know what problem we're trying to solve and who the customer is separate from the technology stack needed to do that.
1: If I were to ask you to advise the younger audience who listen to the podcast, what can you share about your career journey that might be helpful to them?
0: I mean, I think there are so many different places you could
1: go with that kind of question.
0: But <laughs> I'm asking for career advice. <laughs> Maybe I would start with the, the best uh, one I've always learned. There's a um, Gary Tan, who's the president of YC, mm. has this phrase I really like, which is you're either learning or earning. Um, the best job in the world, you are earning good money and you are learning new skills. It is okay if you are earning money and not learning skills as long as you consciously chose that and it's okay to be learning and not earning. Again, if you consciously chose that, I'm going to go work at a startup where I won't make very much money, but I get to be a PM when I wasn't before and now I know how to be a PM and I can go on and do something else. Um, It is never okay to be caught doing neither. So if you ever find yourself in a job where you're both learning nothing and you feel like you're not earning very much money, that's when you have to make a big change. And so with that in mind, one of the things that I have done in every job that has worked out well for me is I have not I have gone to work for someone so every great career decision I've made in my life is who I'm going to go learn from so when I left my job in Singapore which was very well paid but I didn't respect the founders and the work that we were doing and you know didn't think particularly highly of them the, the founder of zip dial woman named Val Wagner who's just incredible basically we wanted in I was like I don't know what it is but I want to learn from you and I don't care what you pay me I'll take whatever's left in the ESOP pool and I kind of got on a plane to Bangalore and it seemed crazy at the time but in my experience every time you go and work for someone who you think is you know generationally intelligent or sees the world in a unique way or has a particularly high whether it is like intuition work ethic some skill that you deeply admire and want to learn you almost always end up getting what you need out of that job mm. When you're solving for, I have a 10-year career plan and I need to go from this brand to that brand so that I have a good enough CV to get that brand, I think that almost never works out because you're not actually solving for the work, you're solving for the brand.
1: Mm. So that comes to the main subject of the day, which we want to talk about, the art of product management. I think we already started talking about it just right at the beginning from your experience as the, as the from a principal PM all the way to become a chief product officer. I, th- I think one way to start this conversation is to demystify a bit what product management means. Yep. And one of the things I want to start off is how would you now think about product management as a concept from a product manager's perspective or a manager of product manager's perspective?
0: And what are your jobs there? Yeah, listen, it's the right question to start with because product management is different things at different companies. But to me, the overarching kind of reality is product manager is a storyteller. You are telling the story of the customer to development teams so that they know what solutions they should be building. You are telling the story of that development team to other parts of the business so that you can, as you said, align uh, other parts of the business around it. You are telling the story of that product to the customer in partnership often with marketing teams, but many PMs are also the product marketer and kind of guide those communications. And then you are telling the story of those customers again, back to the team in terms of how did it go? How are our metrics looking? What changes do we need to make as we keep developing? So at the highest level, you're a storyteller. And being able to do that actually requires PMs to be three different types of leaders. And this is a kind of codification we used in our product development guidelines at Twitch explicitly. And every PM is an operational leader, a people leader, and a thought leader. So operational leader, you are the person who's like, right, I don't manage all of the engineers and designers and product marketers and all the people who work on this but ultimately if this product is going to get to market I am the one who conceptualizes what we're trying to do I am organizing the resources and the troops to get that done I am answering the questions with our engineers and designers in order to get the right solution <clears throat> I'm making operational trade-offs between scope time resources as one must and we're just kind of making sure that the you know the unit of a development team functions
1: mm-hmm.
0: when you're a junior PM that's the bulk of what you're doing In order to do that successfully, you have to at least be a modicum of a people leader, right? You have to do it in such a way that people want to work with you again. You can't just be a tyrannical asshole, nor can you be particularly meek. You actually have to get people to have faith in what you're doing. Um, It's very easy for a PM to fail if an engineering team loses faith in their PM and, and what she or he can kind of do. And then ultimately, as you progress in your career, you have to be a thought leader. You have to be one of the kind of, you know, voices in the room that say, here's the right way to do this writ large. You have to be thinking about how do other companies and other apps do this, or how are consumer habits changing over time so that I can be aware of it. You have to be already thinking about how do things like generative AI impact your world and how should you be thinking about those technologies and tools. And so when you're a junior PM, mostly you are like 85% operational, 10% people leader, 5% thought leader. Mm. Because you're really only leading a small group of people and you're really only the thought leader of your very small area of a product. But as you progress into, as you said, people management and ultimately kind of leading, you swing very heavily into thought leadership and people leadership and you have to give up those operational tendencies. Mm. You actually have to trust that the people running those teams now will do that art right and you can coach them through operational leadership and you become a storyteller much larger, which is like, what are the problems we're trying to solve over time? And where do I think the entire industry is going? And how do we start moving teams in that direction or make them aware of what I'm seeing out in the world separate from what they see at the coalface with, you know, nine developers and a a product manager, uh, sorry, and a product designer and and a PMM. Do do you see like when you become
1: a chief product officer, when you're actually also dealing with resource allocation, right? Mm -hmm. Because you now have a whole group of product managers. So I can give an example here. So when I was being the chief product officer when I was in Singapore Post, one of the things is I have four different product managers that is handling different channels with how the apps work Mm -hmm. in mobile, in web, on the kiosk, etc. And then one of the things that I really find it interesting at that point in time, because I have to step away from being that individual product manager very solely on my goals and start to think, okay, how do I allocate resources perfectly for which area that might allow me to get the best outcome for the business. Yes. How do you do that part of the allocation? I think this is something that in product management, we see a lot of talks, everybody talks about the single product manager, but no one actually have a playbook about what happens when you become a manager of product managers.
0: Yeah, I mean, I actually think it's the same, um, it's the same approach that you have to take to be a single product manager, but you have to start thinking of people both as people and also as like, user stories Mm. so if i'm a junior pm and i'm trying to solve a problem i would sit down and say well what needs to be true in this solution and you write out your set of user stories and you work with your development team to kind of make those true in code when you're the cpo you're sitting here and being like what needs to be true in this app two years from now right it needs to be substantially easier for this to happen we need to take this like 20-step workflow and make it a one-step workflow we need to make sure that we can handle scale five times more than this you've got to have a clear set of priorities as to what needs to be true And then you are setting out a high-level roadmap and allocating product managers or product directors or engineering teams against those particular priorities in the same way that you would have engineering points in a sprint Mm. assigned against a set of user stories. Um, And you have the same problem uh, that every product manager has, which is 90% of your answers need to be no, right? Because there are so many things that will come up that we could be doing. And mostly what your job is to say is, I don't want the team doing that. I don't want the team distracted by this. We're not going to chase that particular white rabbit We know that in order to win, these four things must be true two years from now. So if you're not working on that, don't. So can you give me a story like when you have to say
1: no, as in if you have a lot of features and Mm -hmm. then you have to start to cut cut down that list for the PM, right? I'm sure you and I have gone through a lot of these situations where we have to look at the whole set of features and then we look at the timeline and the constraints and then we say, okay, what are the things we're going to say no to?
0: Yeah, let me try and give you a, a really easy one. So, Twitch chat is one of these like archetypal objects on the internet, right? The volume at which it runs and the the history of Twitch chat is is you know quite impressive. Um, and as things like kind of you know Slack and Teams and these kind of large scale messaging apps emerged, uh, what people at work saw was uh, replies inline, right? You know you can thread on on Slack or whatnot, and you can reply to people. And there are conversations happening in Twitch chat in which people are replying to other people in chat. And we had one of the PMs come up and say, I wanna get replies running, right? This is a this is a good feature that I see elsewhere. My my general mission is to get more people using chat and interactivity up and I wanna kind of drive replies. And the team had done a bunch of work and obviously you've got a, a model that you can copy off of things like Slack and whatnot. And so it seemed obvious. Mm. But when we had to sit down as the product team, one of the things we were saying is the reason we want people to chat more isn't because chat itself is inherently good. <laughs> It is that when people chat, it is stimulus for the streamer Mm. to respond to and to drive that conversation. And it's, in fact, interactivity between the audience and streamer is the real value prop here. So making it easier for a bunch of people to have private, offline, inline conversations, technically, yes, moves up your metrics, but doesn't actually at all solve the problem we're trying to solve, which is, how do I drive up interactivity between streamers and viewers? And the team was pretty crushed when we told them they couldn't go build it because they're like, but it's so obvious. Everybody has this, why aren't we doing it? And sometimes the is re- actually very helpful for somebody who is two layers up to be able to say, I get it, but I don't care because it's not the mission that we're trying to solve for. Whereas when you are right at the cold face of a thing and all you think about all day, every day is chat and how do I improve the edges of chat and, and kind of polish it? It seems like a thing that you want to do.
1: Mm. It, it seems obvious, but actually... If you think deeper, it's actually not that obvious, and it actually deters from you from making that mission.
0: Correct. And, and in a world of finite resources, you spending time doing this, even if it doesn't cause any active harm, is itself harmful because you could have been doing something way more valuable. Hmm. So one, one thing I find interesting
1: is when having features, adding features to the the product is very interesting. But then how do you deal with cutting features? Let's say a feature that someone uses maybe on Twitch and say, you know, nobody's actually using it. Yep. And we decided that we run enough experiments and say, no, let's just cut it. How do you communicate to the user? There may be a group of power users that love it. I I think Twitter is a good example of that. There's a whole group of power users that always go on strike when when they try to introduce
0: features to other... Oh, I have introduced a feature of his PM that had people, you know, rip Twitter trending. So I, I know about that feedback loop. I think Twitch is probably even more emotionally attached to their things. But I think the first thing you have to say is we have to be willing to experiment and turn off features because it is our only real comparative advantage. If you think about the the advantage a neobank has over a traditional bank, Mm. you don't have to build bank branches. And once somebody builds a bank branch, they are committed to that location for many, many years, right? And so they are pot committed to use a poker parlance once they have started a thing. You aren't with code. It works for us. We can turn it on, turn it off anytime we like. And, And so we have this kind of capacity and flexibility to do things well flip side as you note is people who are using a thing when you have a 200 million user product and only one percent of people are using it it turns out that's still two million people using your product and so it seems obvious and the that you know it's only one percent adoption we can kill this thing and you are interrupting the workflow and the lives of two million people so the first thing you have to do is you have to translate the percentages into re- a- like absolute numbers often and then the second thing I think is you actually have to be very transparent with the community and you have to be careful in how you do it because you want to help them understand why you turn things on and off because they want the app to be better. They want the product to keep improving. If you can share with them why this is detrimental, that's always really useful. It's tempting not to do that because like, they're all faceless. But like, in my experience, going the extra mile to literally explain to folks, we're going to turn off this particular feature because while to you it appears intuitive, for others it doesn't work very well. An example of that on Twitch would be a feature called hosting. Mm-hmm. So one of the funny things about live video is that most of the time it's not. If you think about it, if you show up at a YouTube video like URL, that video is always there, no matter when you come. That's right. And the internet is a fundamentally on-demand medium where I expect Mm. it's always there. If a Twitch streamer is live eight hours a day, seven days a week, they're actually only live 33% of the time, which means more than 50% of the time people show up on their channel page, there's nothing there. So historically, what we used to do is let streamers who wanted to kind of make friends with other streamers host if we would call uh, their stream on their page which means if I show up on your page Bernard my st- my my stream might be playing on your page that makes sense to you it makes sense to me because we are existing twitch viewers and it feels like you're helping me out but it was wildly confusing to viewers to show up on your page expecting to see your video and actually my face was there and my stream was there because they were expecting on demand video and they got a it looked like a tech error and so we had a huge number of people like 95% of people who came to a, ch- a page that was hosting bounced It made sense for everyone for us to stop doing that because users who bounce don't go on to watch other streamers and and the the total pie doesn't grow. But what streamers felt when we turned it off was you have taken something away from me, which is Bernard was helping me out by hosting me on his page. He was helping grow my channel and you just screwed me over for no reason. And so we had to spend years and years and years talking to everyone about doing it. Um, And the trade-off between those things where you wanna bring the community along and you wanna make really smart decisions is What you can't ever do is train your customers that if they yell loud enough, that you will change your behavior. Because if you train your customer base to being an angry mob, anytime you do anything they don't like, they will respond as an angry mob. And it is a really fine balance. And it comes back to that point I was talking about before about having judgment and good intuition, which is there are some things you absolutely need to listen to your customers about. And there are some times where you need to believe them, but not listen to them. So you should believe that they are angry or upset about the kind of reduction of this feature, but you can't actually just keep it because somebody might be angry because it has a net detrimental effect. So it is a real a real challenge in that. And I think the other place where again enough enough reps will help you kind of learn this is percentages lie to you all the time. Mm. I, I've turned off features before it looks like only 0.5% of the community is using a feature and it's not important but it turns out that feature had wild adoption amongst the gay or the trans or the black community on Twitch for mm. whom 95% of them are using it and you've now done specific detrimental effect to one part of your community rather than evenly. Mm.
1: So that, that's where I wanted to point into the next question because you have definitely a very non-linear career and you have gone to different parts of Asia you know Australia, US so you, you probably seen a lot of different kinds of culture, different kinds of uh, ways of doing things. Do you find that when you are at product management on a scale like Twitch, how do you think about designing as you just point out about the situation about diversity, right? How Mm -hmm. do you design for different cultures? How do you think about product management to manage in such a way that it caters to everyone? But sometimes you also have to end up turning down some people who may be using this product in a certain way.
0: Yeah, listen, it's a it's a really difficult trade off. I'd say the first thing is it's taught me is actually most customers are the same. So there are far more things that make internet customers similar than make them different. Despite the fact that everybody's intu- intuition is, oh, I'm sure they use it differently there Mm. and and very occasionally you can see that i was talking in in my talk earlier today about how we've seen outliers at twitter between like the japanese having you know tweeting like 70 percent of japanese users tweet every day whereas like five percent of german users do and it's about 10 percent is the global average so you occasionally see big cultural outliers but for the vast majority of users it's actually not that there are distinct cultural differences but the easiest way to try and work out how do you develop in a way that it is true localization and not just translation right? L 10 N rather than just translation is actually to do a thing that Emmett cheer out kind of founder at Twitch used to call paving cow paths. Mm. If you ever look at a map of New York city, it's like a perfect grid except Broadway runs at this really funky angle that cuts across all the streets. Right. The reason it does that is because that was a historic migratory path that the kind of native Americans who preceded the settlers used to walk between two locations and the settlers came and built all these wonderful streets and the Native Americans continued to walk in the direction they'd always walked along the path they always had and this is that kind of diagonal path. And eventually, they had the great sense just to pave that street and that becomes Broadway. And so you can actually do the same thing whereas you go and you look how are users using my product and whenever you have power users, they're almost always kind of trying to break your product in order to be the thing that they want it to be and the best thing you can do is just go and codify that. So Twitch subscriptions were actually invented by a streamer he got, he had enough people who were donating money to him every month as a kind of guy called Day, uh, Daisy. not Daisy, sorry, um, Day9, mm. Daisy's the game. So enough people were donating to Day9 that it was too slow and too interruptive for him to thank everybody in real time as those things came up. So at the end of his show, he would read out the list of people who donated through that show. And then because people were using Patreon, they had to go back and they had to remember to do that monthly. So we went to him and said, hey, would you like us to give you credit card payments so that those are just automated and they can renew. And then from there you can actually create the kind of sub event where actually the alert pops up in stream and he can thank people in real time and keep going. And Subs is now a multi-billion dollar business on Twitch and it was basically just something that a streamer was trying to manage via Google Docs and we worked out how to make that easier for him because if it was a problem for him mm. it was probably a thing that every other streamer wanted as well. Mm. So it's a fine balance between kind of like spotting where is it that you know, my customers are essentially building workarounds into my product so that you can work out how to pave that particular cow path.
1: Mm. I always think that power users can be both in a good and also could go sideways depending on how they use it. I think one thing you, you do point out just now that they can become the angry mob, or they can be the one to can turn your features to be a multi-billion dollar business, right? The subscri- uh, Twitch subscriptions, for example. Yep. How do you judge how to handle a power user where in order to say you were to sacrifice a certain feature that they might want to use mm-hmm. because you want to bring the rest of the community. I think in Web3 you see that a lot.
0: Yes. Uh, well, Web3's problem right now is it's only built for power users. All right, it's
1: built for power users and it's not built for the I rest mean, of the world.
0: It's void of all design as far as I can tell. Yep. The The difficulty in that is very real and I think your best bet is to try and understand when you which of those custom bases do you care about in different scenarios. So, for most web properties that i'm aware of the 5% pays for the 95%, right? <laughs> if you go and take a look at like uh, you know on purchases in games, 5% of whales pay basically for yeah. all games. There are similar power laws when you look at Twitch subscriptions or when you look at Patreon or when you look at any of the kind of creator economy stuff. And so when you ask yourself about monetization tools, your primary question is how do i make this work better for those whales? Mm. You can spend an awful lot of time if you like Trying to work out how to drive up attach rates outside the five percent, in my experience, you can't. Eventually, there are a certain number of people who form a deep enough emotional bond that they want to pay for a thing or they want to contribute to a thing, and then the question is, how do you help them spend as much money as they want? But you, you almost no one has managed to bridge that kind of divide. Whereas. When you are solving for a discovery kind of problem, how do you? You are actually then solving for the 95, not the five, because your power users will know how to do things already. Mm. And our answer at Twitch was just to give people functionality. So, take for example, discovery on Twitch. For existing streamers, they know, and we go back to this problem of most streams aren't live. Mm. If I'm an existing power user of Twitch, I, I log into the page and I open up the Dota category, and I know that if You know, the particular streamer I want to watch isn't in the top three slots. He's not live because he's one of the bigger Dota streamers. So I know instinctively that person's not there and I can leave and that's fine. But for net new users, they don't know. They're now just scanning through a directory of, you know, 10,000 streams live simultaneously. And so what the power users want is for you to leave it in big to small order. What the kind of non-power users need is recommendation sorting. And so what we do is we basically just always provide a toggle where you can choose the sort order that you want. And we provide good defaults for new users and power users. We just remember their choices. And so for almost every Twitch feature you can imagine, there are actually a deep set of controls that allow people who don't want that to turn it off. And we just set good defaults for net new and non-power users. And those are much easier to change over time because if I use something monthly as opposed to 20 times a day, I don't have the depth of emotional feeling about a feature that I probably don't remember as it exists and I'm not going to come with a torch and pitchfork if you change it. True.
1: So we talked about just now that Web3 and crypto is only built for the power user. So I'm coming to the generative AI part. Great. Because this is like the new wave that's coming, and I think this is really a big step change from what we have seen before. From a product manager point of view, when you think about looking at it, how would you think about applying generative AI into products? We have this conversation earlier, and the user interface is very different. Currently, we're still limited by the chat interface, right? Yes. And in the with the vision transformer, you're going to have things like pictures and video transformers coming out. So the design experience, the way the user interacts with the AI would be very, very different.
0: What are your thoughts on this? yeah and listen for context i'm a bear on crypto and a bull on gen ai i know that's not a controversial statement these days but um the reason for that and this colors my answer question is mm. for me uh crypto was a technology in search of a problem that it could solve for people it, it has origins in very thoughtful and meaningful questions around how should the economic system function but for 95 percent of users it's a technology that helps me kind of speculate on financial instruments and so it's a technology in search of a solution means that it's not design oriented or product oriented, it is technology oriented. Mm. Gen AI, I think, on the other hand, is a tool that can be used for almost any application. Anytime where somebody is doing a repetitive function or anytime where somebody is kind of, you know, doing work on the internet, Gen AI can help reduce that work. And in that environment, I think it ends up being very different in terms of its interface because the question isn't, you know, how should Gen AI work generally? It's what interfaces will we build Gen AI AI into? And so you're right. Right now, the vast majority of the way in which people interact with things like OpenAI is via text. And that's because these are large language models. And so for the engineers who build them, text is both the input and therefore the natural output. But as you see it start getting built into products as opposed to kind of a standalone product, you see it used in totally different ways. So you take Adobe's fill and this kind of magic fill product, which is this incredible capacity to kind of expand and snip it if you take a look at the way in which Claude is built into document generation into right. document generation yeah. and its capacity to summarize things, the interface for that is kind of not dictated by the folks who build Claude at Anthropic. It's built by the people who are using those That's kind of right. document apps. And so it is a much more organic and natural integration than something like crypto, which is wholly unique and new and doesn't yet know what role it's filling for people.
1: Mm. So if you were to think in terms of like, Generative AI, and one thing that is coming up is that there's a lot of co pilot for X, Yes. for example. It's the new Uber for X. That's right, that's right. So it, I, th- I think you and I, being product managers ourselves, we tested almost every product out there and looking at the interface and trying to work out what what is the best product for the customer. So, what is the perspective as a product manager? How would you, now that suddenly you have this capability called an agent or an AI mm-hmm. right beside you, able to help you to augment and amplify? your ability to do something say for example like planning a travel list you know it can come and give you all the options to plan for a holiday or something like maybe some other examples that you would be thinking about
0: so as with all great product management i like to go back as i said earlier and say who's doing this well and how do people come to approaches like this and if you go way back even pre-tech there's this concept called time and motion studies if you're trying to optimize a mind What actually ends up happening is you send some junior management consultant out with a clipboard and a stopwatch and they (laughs) follow a piece of coal from the coal face, quite literally coal face, up through the mine, past the chair, you know, onto the truck, onto the conveyor belt, through the crusher, out onto the train, out onto the ship. And you basically work out where's all of the kind of time being spent and then how do we optimize it? I think if I was a PM trying to work out how do I apply Gen AI into my product right now, what I would do is I would go and use my product and work out where are there 10 steps where there could be one and how do I go and use this in order to truncate some of that? So my favorite example of this is if I told you that we were going to go to a fancy restaurant tonight and you needed to find a pair of dress shoes, you can't actually anywhere on the internet right now go shopping and factor in shipping. You have to go in, do you have these shoes? Yes, no, in my size. Only after you found the shoes can you find out if they're in your size. And only after you found out that there are these shoes in your size do you put in your address and then it will tell you, does it or does it not ship? And so you've done all of this work, most of which you throw out at the end. Where an AI agent is going to be incredible is the capacity for them to go through and be like, I can basically do all those processes in parallel. And I just say, I need a pair of black size 12 dress shoes shipped today. And it can run all of those processes in parallel and just answer the question and tell me which website I can get those things on. And it takes what is 15, 20 minutes of browsing out into a singular answer because it can do all that in parallel. And in almost every internet property that I'm aware of, we actually ask our users to do so much work. You were talking to me before about your setup for this podcast and how you've managed to get your workflow down from five hours to one using all these great AI assistants. That Twitch, we had the same problem. Which is, streamers are now making content. Yes, for Twitch, but then they take that video and they make it a YouTube ten-minute video, and then they take it and they make it a TikTok for thirty seconds, and then they go and they make it a series of kind of stories on on Snapchat and, and Instagram. And how do we go and? You know, build that into a singular workflow. So instead of being five hours worth of work, it's 20 minutes is the right question for a product manager. And in order to take that time out, you invariably need tools that can automate things for you. And the problem with automation tools is that they are quite historically really strict to one behavior. Mm. I can automate one thing. And the premise of Gen AI and the promise of it even is that you don't have to do that anymore. You actually let it work out what the rules of it are and they can solve the problem for you in a flexible environment. Hmm. So
1: my penultimate question. So this is actually when I was thinking about interviewing you before I go to ChatGPT, of course, to refine the questions. Good. <laughs> so you wrote this open letter with the chief monetization officer in Twitch together. Mm-hmm. I think I'm not so keen on talking about the, the letter itself. The letter itself, but what what I really liked about it is the thinking that goes behind it. I think before we came yes, to the stage, we were talking about you know what was the purpose of it and what are the things that. You laid out both your priorities, but in alignment. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So it's a great tie together, actually, of a bunch of things we've said. So uh, for Mike Minton, who's the chief monetization officer at Twitch, uh, what he and I are responsible for doing for the organization is asking ourselves, as I said, what needs to be true at the end of this year? And so we would sit down and he would say, listen, streamers need to make net more money and we kind of think that in order to do that, there's probably two or three things we have to optimize. How they run ads, you know, what the option is for subs are, how do we help big spenders spend more? And I'm sitting down and saying, listen, as somebody who owns the streamer and the viewer and the safety experiences, what needs to be true is it needs to be less work for you to do this, and it needs to be more fun for you to do this, and it needs to be more safe for you to do this. And once we have that high level structure, we take those problem statements to our teams and we assign different problem statements to different teams and they come back to us with a list of things that they're going to do to make those statements true, becomes the roadmap. The second thing that we were talking about earlier is that in order for your community to trust you as you make changes to what is essentially their home on the internet, you have to be transparent with them and walk them along. So the thinking is, if we're gonna do these things and these things do involve pretty major shifts, what we wanna do is make sure that people understand both what we're doing, that we will be doing it and why we're doing it. And the best version of that is to take what you do internally, which is you write an annual strategy document to explain to the company these are the five things that must be true, and here are the things our teams are going to deliver to make them true. And you come up with a public facing version, which is, If I truly believe that you're gonna make your home on the internet on Twitch as a creator, and this is the place in which you're gonna base your community and your revenue and all these things, you deserve the same level of understanding as to why we're doing the things we're doing as our employees do. Mm. And the reason we share that with them is we want one, for them to have faith in the company, and two, we want them to make decisions in context of all of the other things that are happening. So if I'm a content creator, should I go and spin up a whole new aspect of my business by coming up with another parallel workflow? If I know in advance that six months from now, Twitch is actually going to have a service for that where I get it for free, probably not going to invest those things. And so what I've always found true is if you can articulate that well enough, it is useful both to internal and external, but it's also a really great litmus test. If you sit down to write your public letter and you can't explain why you're doing something, if it doesn't fit in with your overarching strategy, it goes back to that first thing we said as PMs, which is sometimes you have to say no to it. You're like, I actually can't explain to anyone why we're spending time on this particular feature. It doesn't fit any of the four themes we said we're doing this year. Does that mean we have a fifth theme or does that mean we shouldn't be doing that? And that clarity and that kind of litmus test is really, really useful as a leader when few people say no to you.
1: Hmm. That is at the highest level when we think about product management. So my traditional closing question then, what does success or what would great look like for product managers in the next 10 years?
0: What does great look like for PM? Mm. Well, it's going to change depending on what you're doing. I mean, the, the <laughs> archetypal answer is impact and outcomes. And do your users get the things they need and your business achieve their goals? But maybe I'll take it in a slightly different aspect. We are about to be equipped with better, more powerful tools than uh, any builders before us. And we will have the capacity, for example, to like prototype in real time by describing for an agent build me an app that looks like X and it can appear before us so we can prototype and dog food and do all of those things. If the level of effort required to build things is truncated, the level of, what we can't do is make hundreds times more pieces of garbage. Just because you can build something fast uh, doesn't mean that you should build a hundred things fast because what you end up doing is overwhelming your users by shipping loads and loads and loads of garbage. Uh, you still have to have the same level of conviction that you are right about Mm. the problem. You can now iterate and try a hundred different solutions to that problem. But I think everybody who has worked at a large product organization knows the moment where you flip from, we're very certain that this is the right problem to solve and we're experimenting towards a solution to we're throwing spaghetti at the wall. We don't know what to do next, so we're just trying a bunch of stuff and shipping it. And the risk of amazing tools is that every product manager becomes a spaghetti thrower. The promise of these tools is that if I have real clarity of the user problem and I have spoken to enough users, that I can iterate the right solution for them in real time without it being technologically expensive, which means we can, in theory, get to where you were talking about with internationalization, where it becomes cheap enough for us to build custom and bespoke solutions for everybody.
1: Mm. Which comes back to your first, the two traits of product managers, critical thinking is still needed. Yes, sir. (laughs) Tom, many thanks for coming on the show. And I really enjoyed having this product management discussion. I'm sure we can go many more hours on that. I'm sure we could. So in closing, I have two questions. Any recommendations which have inspired you recently? Uh,
0: One of the things I'm most fascinated with right now is the rate at which uh, D&D or Dungeons & Dragons is actually taking over in the kind of common entertainment zeitgeist. Yes. Um, I used to play... That just a drag is too. So, honestly, I think every, everybody should. And, and let me give you my 30 second pitch for it. Um, right now, hundreds of millions of dollars go into the production of, say, a movie or a TV show. Uh, and we are not very far away from a world in which I can use uh, voice to text to describe something, take that text and plug it into a mid journey take that mid-journey image and then plug that into the nvidia engine and all of a sudden as i describe something to you in real time there is a 3d immersive movie happening describing it and in a world in which all of the technical expertise to create something beautifully visually beautiful disappears all of the value is in the capacity to storytell and if you want to be a great storyteller there is nothing that teaches you like spending hours with a group doing real-time collaborative storytelling where i have to play off what you say and then what the, the dungeon master tells me is happening i have to respond to in particular character and if you want to be a good storyteller as a product manager or you want to equip yourself to kind of live in a world with these amazing tools go and do like group collaborative imagination and play dnd
1: mm, totally agree oh i didn't know we shared that common hobby too final question how do my audience find you
0: you can find me all over the internet. I'm usually TD Robo. Twitter is probably the easiest way to now find me. Now called X. <laughs> now called X, it'll still be Twitter to me. Sorry, gang, you will find a weird kind of arrangement of musings between sport and work and, and whatever comes of the day, but Twitter's probably the easiest place.
1: Mm. You can definitely find this podcast on our YouTube channel or anywhere, any podcast platform out there. Subscribe to us and, of course be part of our community. So once again, thank you for the South by Southwest team and Seinhauser. Tom, many thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Bernard. It was really fun.